Well, this concept of surrender has been pretty huge on my heart, um, probably since my early 30s, which of course was just a couple years ago. And <laughs> Steve, you laugh so loudly. Okay, it's more than a couple years ago. Teenagers don't know the difference. Do you know that? Anybody over 30, we're all old, so. Okay, so I had a rude awakening in my 30s. All the way through my childhood, my teenage years, my mom constantly was convincing me I could accomplish anything. Bought me a little mug that said Mark for President on it and told me that I could do anything I wanted to do with my life. She should have been a Jewish mother because she was just so convinced that her son could accomplish anything. My mom constantly was building us up and encouraging us. And so that builds a fairly self-sufficient, strong attitude about yourself. Regardless of what the world does to you around you, knocking you down, bad experiences, if you've got somebody in your life like that, that constantly says, wow, you're the greatest ever, you can accomplish this, you feel pretty good about yourself. Unfortunately, some people tend to build a little bit of an arrogance about themselves around that, and I had done that. I definitely had built up a self-confidence attitude that I could accomplish anything, and therefore, that equated to whatever I wanted to do, God needed to join me in my adventures. In my early 30s, I had someone mentor me who helped me see the proper perspective on that, that it's not about me, the servant, telling the master what I'm going to do. It's the reverse See, the servant never goes to the master and says, here's my list and my agenda for today, let's go to work. The reverse is, if we're the servant, the master comes to us and says, here's my plan, and you're my servant, I want you to carry it out. That was a rude awakening for me. I couldn't just go over here and do my thing and say, hey God, would you come over here and bless this? It was, God, what do you have for me to do? How do you want me to join you in your work? We're going to look at a real-life example of that this morning. I entitled this next three weeks' messages that we're doing, It's All About Blank. That's what you find on the cover of your bulletin because you're going to have to fill in the blank yourself. What is it all about, especially in relation to Christmas? The hard thing about surrendering to God is this. It is the nature and character of our God to not fill in all the blanks until we take each step. He gives us a portion of the information. He wants us to surrender, but he doesn't give us all the details at once. He wants us to be faithful. So we're going to look at this through the life of Joseph this morning. Joseph, the father of Jesus, and the mission that he had to protect the life of Jesus. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 1. And then we're going to bump over to Matthew chapter 2. We're just going to spend a little time in each of those chapters. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. If you're new to New Hope, you'll see there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. Those are there for you to use. But also, if you don't own a Bible, we'd like you to take that with you today so that you'll own your own copy of God's Word. It's our gift to you. We really want you to own that. And you'll see as well, the passages are up on the screen. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. The word planned in some renderings should say desired. 
He desired as a man who was engaged to this woman to divorce her. There are three stages to the betrothal period in the first century Judaism, and this village would have been no different, when a young man would come to the father of the bride and say, I would like to marry your daughter, they entered into a legal binding agreement, an actual piece of paper that was signed. The betrothal period was one year long from the point in which the young man would come to the father and say, your daughter, in Joseph's case, Mary, I see her and I would desire to marry her. They would enter then into the commitment The commitment led to the preparation in which the young man would go out and begin building a home. In Joseph's case, he's a carpenter so he could build his own home. Others had to hire carpenters. That was the preparation period. By the end of one year, all this work had been put in place and it was time for what we're most familiar with when we go to a wedding ceremony, which was the presentation. The presentation is when the bride was given over to the man. And so the fathers asked the question, who gives this woman? And the father and the mother would say, we present her to this man. The presentation. Somewhere along the line, in the midst of their betrothal, in the midst of the commitment period, while Joseph is preparing a home, he finds out of all things his bride-to-be, legal bride by this point in the Jewish world, is expecting a child. How many here grew up in a small town? number of you. I did. town of 3,000 people. People talk in a small town, don't they? You go to the grocery store, you can tell who's engaged in gossiping conversation. Go to the laundromat, go to the coffee shop. You always know when there's information being exchanged. Generally, two individuals talking like this and pointing at someone over there. You can bet that happened in this situation. We have to ask the question, what kind of a man was Joseph? Well, he's told, we're told right here in Scripture that he's a righteous man. I think his characteristics would bear out the fact that he's willing to put her away privately instead of disgracing her publicly, would say he's also a caring man. Because we know he's a carpenter, I think I'm very safe in saying he's probably very detail-oriented, process-oriented. Guys who make their living with their hands in that fashion tend to think through the stages and the processes to accomplish their projects. We also see that he's probably a very caring man, physically strong, but also emotionally strong. And he's got a mess on his hands. He's got a pregnant wife, not by him. Wife by word on legal document in the commitment process, but not wife in the full consummation. And he knows in this small village Everyone's going to be talking about him and what he did illicitly. His involvement with his wife prematurely. Sexual involvement in first century Israel was met with a very swift punishment if the couple was not married. Now in her case, according to Levitical law, he had a choice. He could disgrace her publicly, issue the letter of divorce to her father, with two witnesses, and before the father, accuse her of going outside the bounds of their marriage contract and have her stoned. She could be killed for what happened here. Joseph knew Mary very well. He knew her character. He knew her purity. But this situation, she's showing by this point when Joseph finds out. 
and he is confused. There's a Roman outpost in this town. A garrison is stationed in Nazareth. Who knows what she did with the Romans? Who knows what's going through his mind? He can't imagine how she found herself in this situation. You have to know, Joseph did not believe her. No way. He would not have entered into this divorce. That's why it says, he planned, he desired to send her away secretly. So in righteousness, in his righteous heart, his caring heart, he's going to put her away and not bring out the death penalty. You're seeing here the collapse of a young man's dreams. All his desires, everything he had hoped for, professionally, within his family community, everything is crumbling, and this is humiliating. And now you're about to see that even in the divorce, he doesn't get his own way. Because God intervenes. Look with me on the screen at verse 20. But when he had considered this, meaning the divorce, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. You've got to know this totally transformed the remainder of Joseph's life. You're about to see a man totally surrender to God. Look at his next action. Verse 24, And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. He's being invited to join God in his work. Not his plans, not his desires, not his career. God says, Joseph, here's my plan, and you get to join me in my work. Understand, he's losing his standing in the synagogue. He's losing his standing in the community. In first century Israel, nobody gives business to a man who's married to an adulterous woman. This is a financial decision. This is a relationship decision. And his family would shun him. The community will talk about him. Life is going to be hard. And he's surrendering it all. You're seeing a white knight ride in on his horse and rescue a damsel in distress. How cool that Joseph is the one who's so strong that steps up. And why does he do this? Because he's completely surrendered to God. He's changed his mind and he's joining God in his work. Now let's fast forward to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13. Things are beginning to look a little bit brighter for him. He and Mary have made the journey to Bethlehem. They don't know exactly what to expect next, but they're obeying the government's commands. Quirinius, governor, he said, you've got to go and make this census happen. So they journey to Bethlehem. We pick it up in verse 13, after the Magi have come and visited Joseph and Mary. Verse 13 says this in chapter 2. Now when they, meaning the Magi, had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, 
For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. You imagine the encouragement that that must have been to that young couple who held this secret to themselves, who knew the truth about who Jesus was, and they're in this village, this obscure area called Bethlehem, and in riding come magi from the east. They've ridden 500 miles to get there. They come with an entourage of Persians riding horses, galloping into Bethlehem saying, Where's the one we've got to worship? And they present gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Very valuable elements. How encouraging was this for them at that point in their life? God knew what they needed to build their confidence. So these individuals have come from 500 miles away. They worship Jesus. And the rejoicing that Mary and Joseph are feeling at this point is very short-lived because there's a warning that comes. God wakes them up again and says, Joseph, you've got to wake up. You've got to get out of here. So just like God warned the Magi and said, get out through the back door. Don't go back to Herod. God says the same thing to Joseph. Was Herod really that bad? Hmm. He was made king of the Jews. That was his official title by Augustus Caesar in 40 B.C. For 36 years, he ruled over Judea before Jesus was born. And now he's got these guys coming in and proclaiming that there's a new king of the Jews. Look at what Augustus Caesar thought of who Herod was. See the quote up on the screen. It's better to be one of Herod's dogs than to be one of his children. Why would Augustus Caesar say that about King Herod? He'd already killed two of his own sons and his wife. He had them executed because he believed they were plotting against him. So he had three remaining sons. You'll find out what's important about that in just a few minutes. So these three remaining sons are living, understanding timidly that their life could be on the line as well. Herod is in his 70s by this point in time, and he is paranoid. He believes his power is being threatened. He's even more than upset when the Magi come running into town and start asking a question. This is the question they ask. Look with me on the screen at Matthew 2.2. Where is he who has been born, what? King of the Jews. Now there's a threat to a king. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. That's his title. What do they mean, the king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. No wonder he's beginning to get ticked. So the number one thing in his mind is to find this baby boy and kill it so that the threat is completely removed. There's a report that this boy has been born with the right credentials and he's coming into power because there's a prophecy that's being fulfilled. Here's the prophecy on the screen, Micah 5.2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Herod knew Scripture. He knew it well enough to go to the authorities and said to them, where is he supposed to be born? Because I'd like to worship him too. Yeah, right. So he understands Scripture, but he's using it to his advantage. No wonder God says to Herod, to Joseph, get up, don't sleep any longer, get up during the night, surrender yourself, and flee. This is the word that was used for flee. Fuego, meaning to run away by analogy to vanish or escape. Escape 
from the country you're in and run to Egypt. Start running, Joseph, and don't stop until you get to another country. Anybody here ever walked 175 miles from Lansing, Michigan to Valparaiso, Indiana is 175 miles, almost to Chicago. That's how far Joseph, baby Jesus, Mary have to journey to escape this madman. The treasure that they received no doubt more than paid for the expenses, the traveling and the living while they're in Egypt. Certainly I'm speculating there, but I believe that they probably used that to help fund their trip. You understand that God has provided for them in that instance? They surrendered to God. God has provided all that they need. He's given them purpose. He's given them funds. He's given them a destination. But He hasn't filled in all the blanks yet. He just says, go and do this. You ever stop and think that God could have protected them in many ways? He could have wiped out Herod's army, could He not? Could He not have just blinded the army? Could He not have miraculously hidden Mary and Joseph? Certainly, he could have done all of that. But in a very ordinary fashion, he said, Fuego, flee, leave this area. Why? Because it fulfilled prophecy again. Look with me on the screen. Hosea 11.1. This is from the Old Testament, written 700 years earlier. I called my son out of Egypt. Now, can you imagine when that was written 700 years before Jesus? Individuals who were thinking to themselves, wait, We escaped Egypt. How in the world would God be calling his son out of Egypt? There's no way they could have tied all those strings together. But here we find God sending Joseph and Mary to Egypt to hide, most likely in the town of Alexandria, named after Alexander the Great, because there were a million Jews living in Alexandria at that time, a place where people went for refuge from the Roman government to build their business. So Joseph's got a couple, hundred, a couple years here now to establish himself. But eventually, God comes back and says, Joseph, it's okay to return. So let's look at Joseph's response first, verse 14. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So something that is written 700 years earlier, God uses Joseph, this simple carpenter, to fulfill his plan on earth. Something God had predetermined far before time. He just needed the surrendered heart. So what did it require of Joseph? Obedience, humility, a setting aside of his desires, his will, Because God knew the mind of Herod. That's why he says back in verse 13, Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Joseph, I know the hearts of men. I know that Satan works through men who are vile and evil. He will seek to destroy this child. So you've got to go. And Joseph obeyed. Let's continue the story and pick it up in verse 16. This is after the Magi have left now. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. So Joseph 
Fuego escapes to Egypt. The Magi make a backdoor departure out of Bethlehem. And Herod is furious and he commits one of the bloodiest acts of his entire career. He's impazio. He's misunderstanding. The word that's used here when it says tricked means that he perceived they deceived him. They're just responding to God's command. But he took it as, they've tricked me. And so his response is, my patience is exhausted. If I can't kill the baby, I'll kill everything within the vicinity. Hopefully the baby will be swept up within that group. So he sends his soldiers because he's thumao. He's enraged. He's a man who feels threatened because he wants his desires fulfilled. The word that's used here to describe his rage says, to put in passion, in rage be wroth. Scripture says he was very thumao, filled with passion, driven. You can almost hear the approach of those hoofbeats riding up to that village. You can almost hear the slash of those swords. Scripture says they killed all the male children, two years and old and under, and the surrounding vicinity. Does it not bother you that Herod knew enough to consult Scripture? But he used it for his own means. He understood that this was the Messiah. Man, is he going to have something to answer for to God? He's crafting Scripture to fulfill his own plans as opposed to yielding to God. From two years old and under, because he just... He understood from talking to the Magi. He's within that age range, and so the slaughter unfolds in Bethlehem. Pick it up with me at verse 17. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. If you're new here, you wouldn't know that we just finished the study of the book of Revelation. For those who participated in that study, if we learned anything through the study of Revelation, is that our God is intimately involved in the affairs of man and governments and nations. God understood hundreds of years earlier that this was going to unfold, that a wicked man like Herod would be in power. All he needed Joseph to do was to surrender. God makes a move. Satan makes a counter move. Move, counter move. Move, counter move. All the way through history, this cosmic war has been taking place. God makes a move to protect his son. Herod makes a counter move. Now eventually, Herod dies. Let's pick it up at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. Joseph doesn't get a whole lot of sleep, so if you're going to surrender, you don't get to sleep a lot. An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Now we understand from archaeology that Herod died somewhere around 4 B.C. So that's obviously about the time that God visited him. We also understand from archaeology through the writings of one called Josephus. He's an ancient historian that lived around the time of Christ. He wrote a book called Antiquities. In Antiquities, he documented the death of Herod. It's kind of gross, 
but you're going to see a fitting end to the life of what a one like Herod is. Look with me on the screen at this quote. Herod died of this, ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath, and neither physicians nor warm baths led to recovery. I don't know what the warm baths thing is, but during the first century, they apparently thought warm baths would heal everything. He died a horrible death, but five days before he died, this is where the other three sons come into play, he changed his will. He found out that one of his sons, Antipater, was concocting a scheme against him, plotting to kill him. And so he changed his will five days before his death and gave his entire kingdom to Archelaus. Now that's a very important part because history supports what Scripture says because Joseph has now been told by the angel to go back to Israel, but Joseph heard something very interesting. Look with me on the screen at verse 22. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. He had good reason. Archelaus, as you're going to discover, is just as wicked as his dad. Let's finish the verse. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. So we see here that surrendering to God doesn't mean you check your brain at the door. Joseph is very aware of the governmental systems. He's very aware of the time in which he lived. And he heard that Archelaus was in power. Archelaus is ruling over Judea. So Joseph is phoibeo. Look with me on the screen at the definition for afraid. To frighten, to be alarmed, sore afraid, to fear exceedingly. Why? Because the wanted posters are still out. Somebody is still hunting for Joseph and Mary. There's still a threat, and Archelaus is just as wicked as his father. As a matter of fact, he's the worst and the most cruel of the three brothers that lived. When his dad died, the military power of this area in Judea exalted Archelaus and said, we proclaim you as king of the Jews. But he refused to take the title until Augustus Caesar placed the title on him. So he submitted himself to Rome. But before he left for Rome, there was an uprising of Pharisees against Archelaus. So much so that they didn't want him in power because they knew how wicked he would be. And so he slaughtered 3,000 Pharisees before going to Augustus Caesar. Now when he went and presented himself to Augustus Caesar, a bunch of Jewish leaders followed him And they made their argument before Augustus Caesar so powerfully that Caesar said, Archelaus, because you are such a violent, brutal man, I will give you one-third of the kingdom of what you're going to rule over is not going to be what your dad gave you. Archelaus was so bad at ruling over the Jews that by 6 AD, he was removed and banished to Gaul, which is up in Germany. And in place of Archelaus, Caesar placed a new ruler over Judea by the name of Pontius Pilate. That is how history unfolded. That is how Jesus came to be under the realm and the rule of Pontius Pilate in those days. Any Jew living in the territory of Archelaus 
was at risk of death. And that's why the angel interrupted and said, you've got to go. So he warns him and says, get out of this region. And he left and went up to Galilee. Why Nazareth? Well, for one, it was up in Galilee. It was out of that area. But Nazareth was such a despised, despicable area. People were uneducated there, rude, vile, drunkard, Scripture calls them. They were To be associated with Nazareth was to be just the most vile term you could call someone, to say they were a Nazarene. But Scripture time and time again says that Jesus was from Nazareth. As a matter of fact, one of Jesus' followers in the very early days said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Look with me on the screen at John 1.46. Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth, yet Jesus lived there for 28 years until he began his ministry. Why? Fulfillment of Scripture again, because Scripture said he would be despised and rejected by men. He even came from a region that was despised and rejected. Again and again, God fulfilling his promises. Did he tell Joseph all of this in the beginning? Nope. He just said, Joseph, surrender, take Mary to be your wife. And I'll fill in the blanks along the way. Was your God surprised by Herod's threats? Absolutely not. Is God ever surprised by the Herods of this world? They mean nothing. God works His plans in spite of the Herods of this world. Was Joseph surprised by Herod's threats? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, he was scared spitless. He was frightened and needed to run away. He walked in fear, but God said, yield and do what I tell you to do. So it obviously cost Joseph something. His commitment to God, to surrender to God, is just like your commitment to God. When you surrender to God, you're surrendering all your plans. You're saying, I make you Lord of everything. Your job, your finances, your family, your relationships, the past hurting ones, the present ones. So what did Joseph have to surrender? His will, his heart. He had to take a pregnant young wife and all the community would be talking about him. He had to surrender his career. He was a carpenter by trade. He's very dependent upon referrals. He had to surrender all of his finances, all of his plans. He had to surrender his safety. Think about this. He's going from making furniture to dodging bullets. He's got the most murderous, notorious king in all of Judea chasing after him because he surrendered to God. Think about the confidence that Joseph demonstrated in what God was doing. Totally yielding. See, our God gives us assignments without filling in all the blanks. But He's never late. He's never early. He's always right on time. He just says, take a step at a time. Do what I ask you to do. I close with this example for you. A friend of mine who was traveling from L.A. up to Seattle a couple months ago. Um, I was with him in September and he described the situation. He jumped on a plane because he was going to speak in Seattle that evening and he was going to return that same day. So he's on a business flight from uh, from L.A. 
He gets on the plane. The seat next to him is empty. And then there's a, a young woman in a seat next to that, next to the window. So they've got this open space in between them. He feels God prompting him to have a conversation with her, but he didn't want to do it. He's just totally into his own thing, what he wanted to do, what he wanted to accomplish. So he's reading his book, and he keeps pushing that urge to talk to her aside, finally ignoring it. And she's busy doing her things, reading through her book, but he keeps feeling this gentle prompting of the Spirit to have a conversation. But he pushes it down far enough so that the plane lands in Seattle, and all he has to say to her, well, where are you going today? And they begin having that end of the conversation, end of the plane conversation. You ever had that? You wait till the plane touches down on the runway, and you know it's going to be a very limited five-minute conversation. See, it doesn't have to go very long. So that's what he did. He waits to the very end. Now they're getting up out of their seat, take their seatbelts off, and they begin talking about her agenda, and he talks about his agenda. And Great, have a nice trip. See you in another lifetime. He goes to speak at a church, at a conference, goes back to the airport. He's catching the 10 o'clock flight back to L.A., sitting in his seat, flipping through his papers, looks up and sees that same young woman coming back down the aisle. Do you know the odds of that? If you travel in business, you know it's extraordinary just to see a friend in the airport, let alone someone that you know getting on the same plane And so he begins laughing to himself, thinking, oh, no, God's not going to do this. No, I can't believe it. She's getting back in my row. Now, this time, there's two empty seats next to him. So God doesn't put her in the window seat. He puts her in the seat right next to him. And he says, I'm thinking, okay, God's thinking, okay, that was too hard for you the first time. I'll put her right next to you. So he yields, and he begins having the conversations with her that he knew was going on. Her marriage is failing. Her business was requiring more of her than she could invest in her family. She hadn't been in church in 30 years since she was just a child. And he got to have kingdom conversations with someone whom he had previously not surrendered to. But because he said, okay, God, you're making it really obvious, I surrender. And he began having conversations By the end of it, he began to be able to lead her to a relationship with Christ. How amazing is our God when we surrender? You know, the second time on that flight back from Seattle, he could have done the same thing. No, not going to do it. Put his nose in the book and read. Or surrender. I like the surrender outcome myself. This morning, before I close in prayer, Michael's going to come up and he's going to play that song again. I surrender all. I'm going to ask you to take this time right now to really contemplate what things might be going on in your life that God is asking you to personally surrender. Might be your job, might be your home, might be your wife, your husband, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, past relationships, current relationships. Certainly God speaks through text like this. He's shown us in the life of Joseph what it means. If you surrender, you get to work with him. He's saying, join me in my work. But it requires you to surrender first. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. We don't do this often at New Hope. If you feel like God's really been pressing on your heart during the midst of the service, I'm going to invite you just to come up here and kneel at the platform and just surrender to God the thing that's on your heart. A few of us here will pray over you. We'll be happy to do that. If you need to go and you've got a schedule to attend to, that's fine. 
We're just going to be here for a few minutes, and I invite you to take this time and really deal with your Father about the things that perhaps you're not surrendering. Talk to your Father about that. Come on up if you're feeling led to.